The following program is being brought to you on the Seventh Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit SeventhWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tong. This program will provide the groundwork you need to advance your awareness and be involved in the approaching transformation in consciousness. Now, your host, Peter Tong. Hello and welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tong. Thank you for joining us today. Absolutely magnificent, sunny, cool, crisp day here in Victoria, British Columbia. And it's the end of the day for my guest today, James Swagger, who lives in the northern end of Northern Ireland. And he's going to be talking to us today about absolutely fascinating series of topics, actually all encapsulated within one uh, study that he's been doing, his research work. And his uh, previous book, and there's a new book about to come out we'll talk about later, The New Grange Sirius Mystery, Linking Passage Grave Cosmology with Dogon Symbology. James, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here and to all the listeners. I'm always interested uh, for our guests to talk a little bit about how they came on, on this journey of their, of their own awakening consciousness and, and how it, it all fits together. So tell us a bit about how it all began for you. Sure. Um, yeah, that's a good, you know, I haven't been asked that before, Peter. People always ask me about my career, my background, and just assume that that is the key part of, and, and it is an essential part of, of how I discovered what I discovered and got into my research. But equally, as you say, Peter, I, I awakened to as a conscious being, um, and that was a major part of you know, if you had have asked me about consciousness, Peter, when I was in my early 20s, I'd have laughed in your face. And I would have went, <laughs> and I, you know, and, and you know, I was an idiot. I was an idiot. Like most males in their 20s, like, you know, <laughs> women, women do mature a lot, uh, a lot younger than males. And, you know, I, I, I was locked in a left brain world, Peter, very much so. And, and you know, that's what I was good at. I, I, I've since now, uh, I'm in a right brain, left brain world. And I actually did a psychology test the other day on, uh, online. And apparently I'm more into the right brain now at the moment, more creativity. And, you know, it's, it's something I'm working on. And I, and I have a nice balance. But, like, I mean, early 20s, I was in this left brain engineering world. And this is where it ties together for me. Um, I, I had wrote some uh, articles. Of course, I'm, I'm obsessed with histories and humanities, and, and this is stuff that I research in my spare time, but equally locked in this left-brain world of engineering and science. Um, and, you know, coming to my late 20s, Peter, I, I woke up to the world, and I woke up to some truths out there, some horrible truths and some nice truths, Peter. Um, and I guess this was a part of me evolving. I've always... You know, I, 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 look in, I look at astrology, Peter, I look at, uh, you know, alternative medicine, alternative knowledge, alternative science, and I have always done so, largely due to my father, who is a hypnotist, healer, and a mechanical engineer. He is, you know, a titan in terms of intelligence, like, you know, for me, and, I, I, 
you know, I'm very lucky to have this guy, and, and you know, he plays musical instruments by ear, Peter. You know, like, you know, something you just can't teach to people. He formulates the musical scale in his head. He, he has a genius quality to him. This was the, the the guy that taught me knowledge, like, you know, and I I learned what ten years at university, Peter, night school, most of it. Um, and you know, for all I learned in acad- academia, you know, I learned just as much in the home, Peter. Um, you know, my father always put down books in front of me, the unexplained and, you know, mysteries. And, you know, he's very much, much drawn to that as well. And, you know, when I go up to my see my father for chats, I, I, we always have chats about this, Peter. And, you know, he's been a big part of me, um, been uh, awake and aware. Um, you know, he's been campaigning against fluoride in the Irish water since 15, 20 years, Peter, before people, before it became uh, fashionable to talk about fluoride. <laughs> but, um so, you know, I mean, I guess my circumstances is a big part of it, my personal circumstances as well as my uh, engineering career. But uh, as a systems analyst, I, I found myself looking at the mystery of the megaliths in an academic sense. Um, and it was the last. I mean, I, admittedly, I am more alert to uh, Babylonia, Akkadian, Assyrian, uh, ancient technologies, ancient mysteries and Egypt and, and, you know, all Aztecs, Mayan, all around the world, everywhere but the megaliths. The megaliths were just a pile of stones as far as I was concerned, Peter. Um, you know, and I found myself studying them in a very academic sense, largely through a bizarre set of uh, circumstances um, and regardless of which, like, I was sitting there faced with this problem and I went, oh, well, I've now got this skill set, you know, late 20s, I've developed some sort of a consciousness, I'm I'm very much aware of my brothers and sisters on the planet, I want to do some good, I want to do some change, I started writing and and compiling some articles for Historical Mysteries magazine and I was getting involved in alternative ideas, I, you know, I wanted to make a change and I I thought I naively would write a chapter on megaliths in in an Encyclopedia of Mysteries book that I was compiling and that's why I was sitting there looking at the megaliths in in detail this time in an academic sense and as a systems analyst, that's what I elevated myself to, Peter. I started off as a low-level engineer, just apprentice engineer and I worked my way up, time served, took myself into night school for mechanical engineering and electrical uh, systems as well. So electromechanical engineering is what I did but what I elevated myself to over a 10-year career working in the UK was, um, you know, PLC programming, programmable logic control systems, where you basically, basically, you know, you look at a whole industrial complex in terms of computer language and you assimilate the story and look for problems, anomalies. You basically automate an entire plant and, and, you, and you make it run efficiently and smoothly. And I, and I looked for problems in the system. This is what I did in terms of electromechanical engineering. So I don't see myself any different these days, Peter, looking at um, problems of the mysteries of the past in ancient technologies, ancient science, ancient knowledge, ancient thought. Um, and consciousness and spirituality is just a part of that because these guys, the ancient Egyptians and the ancient megalithic builders, were very evolved consciously. And that was a part of their science. Um, that, let's not separate that. We separate that today, Peter, but no, these guys, it was all a super science to these guys, a super philosophy. So, you know, I, I don't see myself any different, Peter. I'm looking at anomalies of the past. I'm looking at the mysteries of the past. And I'm, and I'm taking a systems analyst approach looking at the components, taking in all the data, not concentrating on one part or other, taking all the data first, and then try and build some of the story. It's a very fragmented story, and it's a very, you know, you know you've got astronomy, you've got acoustics, you've got uh, fertility, you've got 
consciousness and spirituality, right? possibly use of psychedelics as well in all ancient cultures. Um, so, you know, these are all different subjects in themselves, but I have looked at the wider spectrum of it all first and foremost and then worked backwards looking and concentrating on it. That's what a systems analyst does. It takes the opposite approach to most people where they take that linear approach and when they go, they look at the astronomy and a lot of people will flock to Newgrange or Stonehenge, concentrate in one monument and try and build it up that way. Um, Whereas a systems analyst approach would basically look at all the monuments. They'll look at all passage graves, all stone circles, all alignments, um, all pyramids, whatever, it, whatever that type of problem is, and then build a picture and then look for patterns within that, like a pattern recognition. And then that, you're looking at a system and it's, you know, it's like a computer language type thing. Like, you know? So James, what's really neat about your story is when you actually came to this point in your journey, you found the, some of the most important uh, aspects of this work right on your own back door. <laughs> yes, I know. I actually have a very nice story, Peter. Uh, serendipity, if you will. Uh, I actually think now it's happened for a reason. Uh, I really do, but I, I, I'll talk you quickly through it. I, I was uh, The Archaeoastronomy Bible, if you will, is called um, Hamlet's Mill um, by Hirsch von Deccand and Giorgio de Santiano and, and all the greats before me of Robert Boval, Hancock and you know, these guys have all been chipping away at archaeoastronomy and, you know, I thought if I was ever doing archaeoastronomy, it, would, it wouldn't be in Ireland, you know. And, but the point was, I mean, if you're going to study archaeoastronomy in any way, this is the starting point and this is what I do. I take in all the literature, all the books, and I went, okay, I want to copy this book. The book was expensive. I could only get it. It was $150 of the first edition. It came from America. Gets it in the post and out pops an article. And in the article is Megalithic Observatories. It was like a 30-year-old article. It's 1977 or 76. And in the article, it's got some, uh, you know, some uh, derivation of thought on how they built these megalithic observatories. But it's got a mention of this rock art in Donegal. And I went, oh, my God, that's right beside me. And I looked it up, couldn't find it, got the GPS coordinates of it. And then as I did... I cycle down and I find the two constellations of Ursa Major and Ursa Minor. And I'm like, great, constellations, this is great, this, is, this must be everywhere in the country. What I didn't know at the time was there's only two examples of clear, immediately recognisable constellations. That's the Doth Pleiades Stone at, uh, near Newgrange and what I was looking at, Ursa Major, Ursa Minor, and the Ardmore Equinox Stone, as I call it. And, you know, the point was it wasn't documented properly, Peter. And, I, and here I am oh my God, the only reason I'm here is because this article popped out of a book that came from America. It was a rare copy that I didn't even want to get and it was expensive. And I'm like, this is bizarre to me, like, you know. So that's how I ended up really kind of being tenacious in my academic study of this because I realized, oh my God, this is not documented properly like I was told. I was always of the impression this was all figured out, Peter. This was all wrapped up, nothing to see, it's all done. That was what I was thought. And that may be the case of, Stonehenge or Newgrange where everybody has focused on these monuments and come up with a very elaborate theories and maybe still some more to do yet. Yeah, I don't know, but I mean, what wasn't documented was other parts of the beaten track. And I went, well, I guess the thing to do is to look at all rock art. And that's what I did. Now, I am uh, living in, as you say, in the north of Ireland. Um, couldn't get any for, nor for their north or central, so um, on the north coast. But I'm, I've got a lot of rock art near me, Peter. Um, and uh, a lot of the art is in the northeast or the northwest, the top half of Ireland, basically. Um, so we're very rich, in, and I should I say, there's 45% of the rock art of the whole of Europe sits within a two-mile radius of the range. Um, and at least half of it is in Ireland. 
That, that's, that's a remarkable statistic. So you've got this incredible concentration of these uh, burial chambers and the rock art within the chambers and around the chambers, all mm-hmm. focused in that one area and island? Yeah, all in that little one locale. So if you're going to go and look at anything and figure out what these guys did, art is a very good uh, window into what these guys were up to. Because if you leave art, it's an expression of thought, it's an expression of knowledge, science, astronomy, whatever they were doing. You know, it, it tells you a story. So this is why I, I, I concentrated my story in Ireland. Not because I lived here, but this is where the story is the biggest, uh, biggest clue, the biggest research because of art. Now, there's also alignments, and this is why I also concentrated on my book, The New Grain Serious Mystery, on passage graves, because passageways obviously have an alignment. The passageway aligns to something, most likely stellar phenomenon or solar or lunar phenomenon. So I was able to concentrate. This is the main reason. This is the systems analyst approach. I, I looked at many things. And I went, well, no, I'm going to confine my research to passage tunes and I'm going to confine my research to the art. And of course, like, I mean, Newgrange is highly decorated um, and it's a passage tomb and riddled with rock art. So, but there's the other ones that uh, don't have any art, but they have the alignments. And there's other ones that have plenty of art and no alignments, uh, you know. So there, there was a reason I concentrated on, on this basically island. But I mean, I have stepped outside the island, I've been as far as. Portugal to Scotland uh, and as far across as Holland there's like patches of them there's like 60 in the Drenthe region in Holland Denmark where my mum's from is riddled with it Peter absolutely riddled with it there's something maybe like a thousand there in various states of decay at least 250 passage tombs in, in good states of decay not, uh, in good states of preservation but, so James, James we're actually coming up to our first break and we'll take the break and when we come back we'll actually sure. talk about these alignments and the, and the rock art to help our listeners understand what this is really all about. It's Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. This is the 7th Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. Are you looking to advance spiritually? Listen each week for Spiritual Enlightenment, Advancing One's Wisdom. Your host, Medium Maureen Allen, will cover an array of spiritual topics aimed to help you advance your soul's desired growth. Each week, areas of spirituality will be discussed and explored ranging from strange, paranormal experiences to heaven, spirit guides, and angels. To learn more about the other dimensions and how to better assist your path of evolution, tune into Spiritual Enlightenment, Advancing One's Wisdom, every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific, on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Be visionary. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel.
listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. It's your host, Peter Tung. Thank you for joining us today. Um, I have with me uh, James Swagger today, and I'll get back to that in a moment. Just uh, to remind you to go to my website, www.petertung.com, where we have all of uh, the radio shows archived, all of my newsletters, and uh, this new opportunity that I'm offering, which is live meditations on a Thursday morning at 11.30, Pacific, uh, you can listen live or you can listen archived. And to get further information and join in, just go to my website, www.petertongue.com, and go to the events link and click on that, and you'll get all the information you require. The neat thing about this is I do a weekly meditation, and it's right up to the minute of what is taking place in the world of spirit and energetically and astro- astrologically as well. And also www.myheartcenterjourney.com and the Ambassadors of Light class. And uh, we will be meeting next in the first week in December, December the 5th. Uh, but feel free to go and check that out and uh, join us for um, Heart Centered Journey together. We have uh, James Swagger with us today who's written a book called The New Grange Serious Mystery. And James, it would be great if you could uh, give us a little bit of a, a, a setting up of what the actual, what it looks like in this area in Ireland, which is called the Boyne Valley, where Newgrange is, and there are other uh, passage graves as well, and the alignments and, and what that is all about, if you could just inform our listeners on that. Sure, Peter. This is, this is great. This, this builds a visual uh, setting. Um, so, yeah, you mentioned the Boyne Valley. That's where Newgrange is situated. Uh, Boyne Valley is actually uh, one of the largest natural amphitheaters in the world, which very few people seem to remark on. Um, so, I mean, the echoes are around the valley, and we have a mutual friend, Gary Evans, that put us in touch. And when Gary was in there recently, uh, he was drumming inside, and I could hear the echo booming all around the valley. Like, And I actually was, I, I, I had known it to be a natural amphitheater. Um, but I had never heard it like like that, and I and I kind of just transported myself back to three thousand BC, and I, I kind of wondered what it was like for people in the valley, like you know. But it is a beautiful scenic valley. It's lush green grass. The River Boyne is just at the foot of the monuments. You have to cross over the River Boyne to get to uh, the monuments. But there's uh, there's three monuments, the main monuments at Newgrange. There's Newgrange itself, then there's Noth, and then there's Doth. Um, funny names, but that's they come from Irish Gaelic names and that. Uh, <laughs> These three main monuments are the centerpiece, but Noth has something like 18 baby mounds situated directly around it. So one of them is even, or two of them are touching the actual incorporated into the side of the mound. Um, And there's astronomical reasons for that. Uh, Newgrange, there's another one in the field just across the river, uh, or just across the the fields uh, down at the foots of Newgrange. And uh, there's something like 40 in total around what they call the Boyne Valley uh, Cemetery Complex. And they call them a cemetery because there was the remains of bodies found inside these mounds. Now, most people just concentrate on the monster mounds like Newgrange, Noth and Dolt, and, and they are, for all intents and purposes, centerpieces. But there's equally small baby ones uh, that, you know, we're doing some sort of an astrological or astronomical function, uh, targeting something, mapping something out, maybe before the mound was built. 
So it's an incredibly complex uh, ground plan, if you will. Um, so, so, it, why, I, so why is there a, what, why is there a connection between being Graves and being astronomically aligned? How does that work? Wow, well, great question. I think, personally, they were astronomical observatories first and foremost, Peter. The archaeologists seem to concentrate on the burial function because once you find bones anywhere on this planet, its anthropomorphic viewpoint steps in, these are bones here, it becomes a human story, and then it's not just a, you know, it's not any other type of monument anymore, it's a grave. It's bizarre the way we do that. Suddenly, you know... You know, if you were to come a future civilization and find, uh, you know, in a cathedral, you'll find the, the grave of a saint or something like that. You're not going to call them, like, graveyards. They're going to be cathedrals. They're going to be acoustically tuned or, you know, they've got architecture there, some of the grandest architecture. They're engineered buildings as well. And in the same way of applying that to these ancient monuments, we seem to just forget about everything that they are and concentrate on the human story, which is that the bodies were found there. So... I don't like to try and, I, I have to, because that's what the name has been stamped as, uh, as burial chambers or cemetery complex. Um, I should just, just say that Newgrange, uh, in the Boyne Valley, this Boyne Valley Cemetery Complex, is the most complex megalithic site in the world. Now, there's very complex megalithic sites all over the planet, but this one is incredibly complex because of the level of complexity that's there. And this is what I flock to. This is what I love, Peter. It's a very complex thing to explain, but basically, if you can think of a bending river, the River Boyne, um, which may have been quite bigger in, uh, in ancient times because of uh, climate and uh, different levels of seas and that, but uh, it does open up to the sea, by the way. Um, and they reckon that's maybe where they transported the stones in, but it's inland a little bit. It's in a nice lush valley. Um, when the sun rises over the horizon, the Red Mountain, uh, it, it then shines into the chamber of Newgrange, which is what it's famous for. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you have three major mounds sitting quite close to the, the Boyne Valley River. Um, and this is just one cemetery complex, if you will. There's equally uh, grandeur of other ones called Loch Crew and Carrow Keel that I talk about in the book. Carrow Keel is in its own gated complex, slightly different terrain. You know, it's up at about a, a thousand feet high. And they're very, they're highly elevated. They were on a limestone uh, plateau. It's now uh, bogland up there and peat and bog growing there. But um, you know, different terrain, different setting. Um, but again, groups of these megalithic mounds, um, no soil incorporated into it, just all stone up there. Um, so slightly different uh, techniques and slightly different, but the same type of function. Again, Loch Crew, built forty kilometres to the west of uh, Newgrange. Uh, has it's split over four hills and there's four complexes um, over four hills. One of them's pretty much gone. Um, two of them are called uh, Cairnbane East and Cairnbane West, and they host still very big uh, uh, mounds that are still, you know, equally preserved today. Uh, Loch Crew Cairn T, some of the best acoustics there, some of the m most intensive rock art there, and some of the most revealing art. That a lot of people forget about Loch Crew. I, I think personally for me, the Loch Crew complex is uh, equally as good as Newgrange in terms of what its story it tells us. Maybe not so much in its pristine preservation-like, but um, in the story that it tells us. So these are cemetery complexes. In, like Basically think of groups of megalithic mounds dotted in little patches across the country. They are bizarrely all in straight line as well, Peter. Um, perhaps they were able to map over long... Uh, 
long terrains. But uh, each the, the key thing is when you realize that there's megalithic uh, cemeteries, as they call them, or megalithic observatory complexes, whichever you choose to call them, they are in patches and groups of 20, 30, 40 more. At least some people reckon that Loch Crewe had maybe 100 at one point, and they're in various states of decay. I think out of the 40 that survives... 20 are in, in, in pretty much bad shape like so a lot of the roofs are gone now and a lot of them you know, are lost or former glory but we can still tell a lot because the alignments are there and that's the key thing Most so, of these so tell, us, tell us a bit about the alignments yeah the key, the key thing is that the alignment of the passageway most, should I just say Newgrange's passageway is very very long as is Noth Noth has the longest passageways of any passage grave in Europe um, so these passageways are basically long, meandering passageways that let a beam of light in. Not necessarily a beam of sunlight, it could be a beam of moonlight, it could be a beam of sunlight, or it could be a beam of starlight. So let's not concentrate on what the actual stellar phenomena is. But they can be still measured today with a compass, Peter. So, you know, it's not rocket science what I did, Peter. This is the key thing. It's, it's, you could just go with a compass today, you can take these alignments, you can jot them down, you can look in astronomy programs and see what, you know, we align to on the horizon. So... The beauty is, um, it, it's all still measurable. We can still figure out the story. And this is what I tried to do. I tried to map all the cosmology, the existing cosmology out there that these guys had. And when I did, I, 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 you know, I, I had to get inside the monument and I had to get outside the monument in, in terms of mindset. When outside the mindset, there's a ground plan in place. You can understand that there was all sorts going on. The little mounds seem to be precursors to the big mounds, uh, mapping out, adjusting fine-tuning, looking for angles, looking for different things on the horizon. And then they incorporated all the knowledge into the big mound. This seems to be the story. Um, when you get to Carroll Hill, it's slightly different because there doesn't seem to be any one major featured mound. They're all equally of the same size, apart from Carnegie, which has a light box that seems to be unusually different to the rest, but equally they're all of about the similar to the same size. Um, again, they not all have one passageway. When you come to note. It's got two passageways, one on the eastern side, one on the western side. Um, but each one seems to just take the alignment, Peter, to uh, the sun. It's usually the sun, and uh, it's what people kind of focus on. But the alignments, uh, the mid one for Newgrange is the midwinter solstice. Uh, uh, sorry, the, the the winter solstice, and uh, it's the sunrise on the winter solstice. For Doth, it's the the summer or the winter solstice sunset so it's either sunrise sunset or summer solstice winter solstice spring or autumn equinox um, not only that there's the halfway points in between these four special days of the year everybody knows midsummer and everybody knows midwinter um you know and spring and autumn but you know halfway points we had these and they still survive into the celtic calendar and the gaelic calendar um so these halfway points in today were called cross-quarter days. And when you come to Loch Crew, this is the key thing, because I talk about the Loch Crew solar mapping complex, all the alignments at Loch Crew seem to be pointing at these cross-quarter days, not just the main mound, but, you know, all these smaller mounds surrounding seem to be trying to fine-tune exactly when the cross-quarter day is. A little bit more difficult than the, because the, the, mid, uh, the mid-winter and the, and the mid-summer you know, they're easy to find out because the sun seems to stop on the horizon. It migrates east and migrates west. So it rises in the east, sets in the west. Uh, rises in the northeast, sets in the northwest on the summer. And rises in the southeast and sets in the southwest on the winter, midwinter. 
but so if you look at the trajectory of the sun throughout the whole year, it seems to just keep going backwards and forwards on the horizon. But there's standstill points. The standstill points are midsummer and midwinter. So you know, it's it's not a big fancy thing to figure out, Peter. Actually, this was just the basic building block that these guys used for the alignments because. What they used that was was a special day of the year to make out observations. They used this one alignment, whether it was midsummer, midwinter, spring or autumn, um, these special days. They, they took these special days, whether it was sunrise or sunset. It was a way of fine-tuning an exact day to make observations because in an astronomy, if you want to look at alignments, you need to know when the conditions are all right because constellations change throughout the whole year, summer and winter constellations. So if you're going to look at any alignments, Peter, it's got to be the same day at the same time every year. Otherwise, you know, you're not going to you're not going to do the exact same measurements. You're not you're not reproducing the measurement. So, so in some ways, so in some ways, they were setting up some form of uh, calendar. Me- then a way of measuring yeah, calendar, a methodology for observation. Um, but these, yeah, these monuments are not just uh, graves. They're they're astronomical observatories using this basic building block of. Uh, midsummer, midwinter, spring or equinoxes to uh, you know to explore further deeper cycles of cosmology. We're coming up to we're our second uh, break, James. We'll take a break now, and uh, we'll return with uh, James Swagger after the break. It's Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Which voice do you hear? The voice of your ego or the voice of your spirit? The one you listen to can determine your entire future, your decisions, your existence. Listen to Two Voices with Dr. Nick and Reverend Linda Martin. We'll identify, discover, and explore your two voices and help you to determine how they shape your life. It's an experience which can allow you to transform your ego, hear the voice of spirit more clearly, and create the life you were meant to live. Two Voices is heard Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America 7th Wave. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. Invite meaning and inspiration to your life. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program.
Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. Thank you for joining us today. I'd just like to take this opportunity to thank our sponsors for this series of shows, Sherry Chase and Chase International Real Estate Company of Lake Tahoe and Reno, Nevada. And also to thank Matt, our regular engineer for this show, does a scrupulous job in supporting uh, the program. And Brandy Jackson, who is uh, my producer for uh, all of our shows, actually. And to thank them for providing the opportunity for me to bring these wonderful guests to you so you can get an insight into the world of spirit and consciousness. And one of those wonderful people is James Swagger, who's with us today. And James, I'd love you to... uh, just explain to our, or describe to our listeners what it's actually like inside one of these chambers when the light of the sun comes in or the moon or, or Sirius, whatever it happens to be, comes into the chamber and illuminates the rock art. Just explain that process. Sure. Um, thank you kindly for those words as well, Peter. Um, oh, not at all. Yeah, you know, the, the thing is, we, well, we, let's treat the sun first because the sun we can still witness today as it was pretty much back 5,000 years ago, Peter, because the alignment's still there, the passageway's still there, and the sun, for all intensive purposes, doesn't deviate very much. There is the obliquity of the ecliptic and precession of the equinox and, you know, these wobbles in the earth, but, you know, the sunbeam isn't off by very much, Peter. You know, over 5,000 years, it's it's pretty much dead center at the back. It's not off uh, very much at all, but just talking Newgrange, uh, on the 21st of December, the the midwinter solstice, it, what happens is the sun will rise on the horizon, but it can't, uh, as soon as it comes up on the horizon, it's blocked by Red Mountain. And it takes another few minutes to rise up above the mountain. So that gives it actually a better, uh, you know, it gives it a better uh, chance for a more dramatic effect because the sun gets above the horizon before it gets to enter the chamber, you see. So it has to clear the mountain as well in the in the distance. And as it does so, it enters the chamber at about 8.58 a.m. And it takes a while to migrate down this long passageway because the passageway, by the way, is uh, about in feet, about 60 feet long, 20 meters, 60 feet long. So that's quite a mean feat of engineering to, first of all, build a chamber that will incorporate the sun to penetrate 60 feet. So a lot of the chambers can be quite small, Peter. Um, so to get it to penetrate down that is... Some people say it may have taken even 50 years to map that out, but what happens is for 70 minutes, the sunbeam will eventually migrate in, hit the back of the chamber, and migrate back out again. And that's it for a whole year, Peter. You don't see the sun inside that chamber. You know, This is, this is, the, this is the thing. This was a once-in-a-year event. Now, like I say, not to take away from the event of the sun entering, uh, this was a spectacle. I'm sure it was... Um, you know, a fascinating, uh, jaw-dropping event in ancient times as it is today. Um, you know, but this special midwinter solstice was used to figure out other astronomical calculations and deeper cycles. That's for sure. Um, but, uh, you know, like I say, uh, when you go to Doth and the sunbeam comes in there, hits the back chamber, but it reflects off the back chamber and hits into another recess. And so it lights up this other recess and does something slightly different. Um, when you get to Carol Keel, the sunbeam comes in through a special light box. The chamber is very, very short, and it hits a special stone just at an angle. Uh, it also takes in the moon every 19 years. So the sunbeam coming in, Peter, you know, it changes uh, with each monument. It, it slightly does something different. When you get to Loch Crew, the beauty of Loch Crew is, you know, there's a big uh, queue of 25,000 people 
a ploy to see this uh, Newgrange event every year. There's a lottery, and uh, you know, this only get fifty people inside, so it's like twenty five thousand people apply for fifty places every year, Peter. Right, so the chances right. of getting in there is pretty slim. But and Lock Crew, you can go up there on the spring and autumn equinox and watch the event there, and everybody gets to get a, ch- a chance and a go at it because it's. They're largely forgotten about. They're not the main prize like Newgrange that everybody flocks to. They're not on easier terrain to get to. You have to park at the car park and walk up to it and slightly outside a main city, 40 miles outside. So not a lot of people there. Only the hardened researchers and, and devotees get to, to go there and see this. Like, But, uh, but the point is uh, the sunbeam comes in on the spring and autumn equinox. And as it does so, it illuminates the what I call these sun wheels, these doggone sun wheels, these... Uh, these special solar wheels showing the eight segments. Some of them are six segments as well, but uh, mostly for the better part are eight segments. They're a circle with uh, north, south, east, west, northeast, northwest, southeast, and southwest rays coming out of it, if you will. Um, and as it does so, it hits the top sun wheel, and then the, as the sun rises on the horizon, the sunbeam inside follows the trajectory down at an angle downwards and, and hits sun wheel after sun wheel following the sun wheels on, on the inside. It's beautiful because you actually can see the sunbeam doing something. They're basically saying, look at what we're doing. We're taking this sunbeam and we're hitting this rock art and then we're following the sunbeam down with these special solar wheels. So very interactive uh, lock crew. And, and then, like I say, each chamber seems to be slightly different. There are, of course, ones that don't open up to uh, spectacles of the sun at all because when you get to Colonel Keel, and this was the key thing from my research that I realized is a lot of them face almost due north, Peter. And if it, fa- if it faces almost due north, the passageway, well, it can't let in the sun or the moon. It's an impossibility, uh, past or present or future, because the sunbeam doesn't get further northeast or northwest in the midsummer like. So, you know, if it can't get past northeast or northwest, it's not going to come in the passageway if it's almost due north. So, some of them are within eight degrees or almost due north like. So, that only leaves one thing, Peter, and that's starlight. So, you know, let's let's just make a comparison to ancient Egypt. These guys were letting beams of starlight, uh, the Temple of Dendera, let just the beam of, uh, ironically, you know, uh, the beam of sunlight from the star Sirius illuminate the passageways, Peter. And when procession of the equinox knocked this out of alignment every 200 years or so, because 200 years... Uh, in processional terms, would be the width of the full moon. So if it, was, it doesn't matter what that is, sun, moon, or whatever, you know, this procession of the equinox, these stars, what, if you align to any star or constellation, um, the, you're looking at uh, three degrees of procession um, uh, is equal to about 200 years. Um, so, you know, the, the beam of uh, light from, star, from the star Sirius was out of alignment. They would rip the temple down and put it back up again, realign it every 200 years. So taking starlight into... Uh, into temples or whatever is, is, is as common as the sunbeam, although a little remarked about. So this is where I, I looked at Carol Keel and, and, um, and I also, funny enough, there's a whole host of monuments, Peter, uh, little people seem to uh, pick up on as well, is that they're at 17 degrees east of north. Of course, this is uh, taken in Cassiopeia and the Cygnus constellation. So starlight was equally as important as sunbeam coming in, uh, Peter. So hopefully that kind of gives you an idea of the picture. Um, well, it does, well, it does. But, but I mean, each, each thing you say um, is creating more and more questions. <laughs> so so why, why, why do you think certain constellations were of more significance than others? What, what was that about? Do you, do you have a sense of that? 
that's a good point to pick up on, Peter. It's, it's creating more questions because that's what these guys were doing. These, these guys wanted more questions, Peter. They, took, they weren't just going to make a monument to make it look pretty and a spectacle. These guys were exploring knowledge, Peter. They were exploring their consciousness. They were exploring astronomy. They were exploring facets of knowledge that they weren't exactly getting to grips with. So by aligning it, I mean, they didn't want to make another copy of another monument. They wanted to do something new and exciting at each monument. That's the way I look at it. That's why I, when I realized that each monument, Peter, had its own uh, solstice, yeah, that's great. But then it also had this secondary function. They seemed to be figuring out this constellation or they seemed to be concentrating on the moon or they seem to be concentrating on the solar cycle, or they seem to be concentrating on some sort of a, an anomaly. Uh, that they, so it, it seemed to be research. I, I think these, these were like Stone Age universities, Peter. So Newgrange, Notes, Dose, Carol Keel, Carol Moore, Lock Crew, you know, just in, within Ireland alone. I mean, each one seemed to target um, secondary research. They give, us, they give us these knowns, these solstices, and they give us what they knew. And they were like teaching platforms, astronomical observatories, teaching platforms. But they always had some area of research, just like we have at our own university today, Peter. They were looking for these deeper cycles of, of time. And what the biggest cycle, the deepest cycle of time is the procession of the equinox. Now, I have shown evidence that they most likely knew the procession of the equinox. They knew it was there at the very least. Whether they knew what it was about or figured out its exact um, its exact function is open to debate, but they you are certainly aware of it. If you put a row of standing stones, Peter, and you align it to, say, Sirius, Cygnus, anything on the horizon, you come back 200 years later, and it's going to be out of alignment. It's as simple as that. One degree is equal to 72 years. 200 years later, it's out three degrees. That's the width of the moon. So these guys were in existence over long epochs. So, you know, being in existence over long epochs, you're going to know that your alignment's out of, out of sync within a, a couple of hundred years. So perhaps why these monuments fell out of use? Because they did the research. The research was redundant 200 years later. They figured it out. They moved camp, built another set of monuments, new set of research. What else don't we know? Oh, we've done the moon. We've done Venus. We've done the sun. Let's tr what, what's all these stars moving out of alignment? Let's try and tackle this next. That's the way I like to think about it, Peter. And the evidence is... Each monument has its main alignment of the sun, and, and what it does is it uses that special day to make observations. And you, what you see is you see secondary observations going on, all different at each other monument. It makes sense. It makes sense, Peter. So you, so, you, made, you made a passing comment there about uh, the, the rock art reflecting uh, the Dodon, who come from Africa. So how do they fit into this? Well, in a very obscure complex way peter I, I became uh i became aware of the became aware of the dogon element through uh you know the, the art and uh, there's a wonderful researcher called theresa vergani she wrote a paper on the ethno mathematics of the dogon and basically they had the spiral peter just like newgrange they um they had uh, the same art they had the same art representing the same thing peter uh so what you have is uh, a heliacal rising, um, and the Dogon used these same symbols for heliacal risings. A heliacal rising basically means Helios being the sun. A heliacal rising of a star is when a star rises at the same time as the sun. The only difference is the star comes up first, then the sun, and it quickly drowns out the star. That's known as a heliacal rising. The ancient Egyptians were mad about it, as were the megalithic builders. But the Dogon used the same art to represent 
uh, heliacal risings. It's bizarre. This it's this bizarre complex concept that we see, you know, reproduced at the ancient monuments of Ireland. It's not just the the spiral. It's the it's the the sun wheels, as I call them, the Dogon sun wheels. It's the spiral is concentric circles, and uh, you know we have the same art doing the same things in both cultures. Line. So do you think so they actually uh, physically uh, connected, or were doing so consciously? I think at the very least the same commonality is there. So you can go two ways that they had some. Well, Dogon, I believe, marched out of ancient Egypt. Uh, I follow the work of Larry Scranton. He's a prolific researcher. A similar approach to this as well, where he's a computer programmer who's looked at the uh, linguistics and the hieroglyphs um, as, a, as a language, as acronyms, and uh, has pretty much shown so many points of commonality between the Dogon and ancient Egypt. But going back that far, uh, I mean, the Dogon go back at least as far as that, that we know. So they're in the same time frame as the megalithic builders. They also marched across uh, the Straits of Gibraltar at the top of North Africa to get to where they reside today in Western Africa. And in doing so, they're only across from Alcalar uh, passage graves, these megalithic mounds in Portugal. Like, So they're not that far. They were in the same proximity at the same time, Peter. You know, was there a transfer of knowledge? Did they have direct contacts? Was it the same people who taught the Dogon that taught the, the megalithic builders? That's the big one. <laughs> well, we'll take well, our we'll last break now, James, James, and uh, we'll uh, come back in a moment. Oh, it's, sure. it's Peter Tong for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. The 7th Wave Channel on The Voice America Network. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. Every moment that we live provides us with numerous opportunities to grow more deeply spiritually through our active engagement in positive, concrete ways that can uplift, encourage, and help ourselves and each other. Become a part of Our Sacred Journey with your host, Audrey Katagawa. Our program will include guests who will share their experiences with you to inspire you to help create a peaceful, cooperative present and future and to explore your creativity and the valuable contributions which you can make. Our Sacred Journey airs live Mondays at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on 7th Wave. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Seek greater awareness. You're listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. 
Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. I have with me today James Swagger giving us a fascinating insight into the ancients and what their level of awareness and what they were actually engaged in in building the megalithic structures. So James, just give our listeners your information, website and things and, and, and how they can make connection with you and your work. Yeah, sure, uh, Peter. Um, uh, my website is jameswagger.com. Everything I do is there. I have several websites, but they're usually all hosted under that, and uh, I'm constantly updating my sites. So that's James Swagger 2Gs, S-W-A-G-G-E-R, jameswagger.com. It's linked up there. Um, I'm doing a second book on the acoustics of these ancients because it's a two-part story, Peter. It's a story of astronomy and it's a story of acoustics, archaeoastronomy, archaeoacoustics. That's the areas of research that I got in to, to understand it. And uh, I like to do a web page for every book, so I'm working on the new web page for the acoustics at the moment. Um, so, yeah, I mean, everything I, everything I do is at jameswagger.com. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm open to questions. Please get in touch with any questions. I love to hear back from, uh, I love to hear feedback. I, I absolutely adore it, like, because usually it's the listeners that usually have some other angle that I haven't thought about or something, area of research. And, you know, um, the consciousness thing, Peter, really is the key for me because I'm looking for answers myself, Peter. You know, it's not just <laughs> writing a book and, and chatting down something that somebody has missed. It's not about that. It's about... I, I'm always looking for answers, Peter. I don't care if it's ancient or it's modern. It's like I'm exploring my own consciousness. And the funny, ironic thing is I'm doing it through the ancients, Peter. You know, the ancients, ancient history is teaching me stuff about my own consciousness and spirituality. I think we're, we're lacking in that department in, in this modern, advanced, so-called advanced civilization we're in today, um, Peter. But, you know, I'd like to think that uh, I'm getting some answers. Um, I'm not totally there yet, but like... Um, yeah, so, just, no, uh, so, so, so just give us a, a brief word on the acoustics because I know Gary Evans, who I know well and has been on this show, has just visited with you and you did some acoustic work. So just, just whet the appetites for our listeners for the next time you're on the show when the book comes out. What is the role of the acoustics in all of this? Yeah, you know, it, it was a part of their science, Peter, as was astronomy. And this is the thing, it might seem like, it might seem like a, an easy idea, but, you know, I, I'm trying to process a lot of complexity and... I was aware of the acoustics knowledge that these guys had at the same time as the astronomy research. I mean, I was carrying battery equipment going around measuring the internal resonance of the chambers. I was long aware of previous acoustics research, which wasn't that well done. I mean, it was done in some sort of a basic form, but some parts were missing. Some monuments weren't even measured. And uh, there's a whole show on that in itself, Peter, the acoustics. But the key thing is that Equally as advanced as these guys were in cosmology and mapping out the heavens, they were equally advanced in acoustics. Now, the, the key thing is the art to all this. When I read Graham Hancock's book, uh, Supernatural, he was looking at ancient cultures um, and he was looking at it in terms of consciousness and exploring consciousness. And psychedelics usually was what he was kind of getting into. But equally... When I, when, I read, when I read the book, I came to a part on antoptic phenomena. And this is the key thing here, Peter. The, the art that we have in Ireland is very, very rich, as I said. There's such a high quantity of it here. But it's twofold. It's astronomy-based art and it's consciousness-based art. Now, I say consciousness because when you go into an altered state of consciousness, you can do that a couple of ways. You can do it by rhythmic dance and chanting until a point of exhaustion. You can do it by psychedelics obviously chemical compounds and theogens you can also do it through acoustics acoustics has the power to change the harp has been known to heal depression um 
and uh, also an ancient instrument as well. Um, but the, the point is, I, I naturally assumed with the acoustics research that it was acoustics was the consciousness art that they were depicting. That was their route into this uh, entopic phenomena art that they were, you know, they were drawing these psychedelic visions. Sorry, not they were drawing these conscious uh, altered states of consciousness. I, I kind of since realized that, you know, there was probably psychedelics being used as well, and I have evidence for both. One's anecdotal, one's measurement, one's scientific, one's uh, esoteric, you know, but the point is that I think they most likely use both routes, that is, entheogens and um, acoustics to go into all the states of consciousness inside these monuments, and that's what we see. We see these floating circles, we see concentric circles, we see spirals, we see all the entoptic phenomena, there's a whole list of 40 entoptic images that you see in your retina, you know, as you go on and on to state of consciousness. And it's all there on the art. It's, it's a no-brainer, really, when you look at it, Peter. If you see a picture of Newgrange art and you see a picture of entoptic phenomena, you go, oh, that's the same. No-brainer. Does it answer it? No. It just tells us that they were exploring their consciousness at these monuments. And when you think about it, really, Peter, it's not much, you know, these guys, I, I like to think of it as a start, a middle, and an end story. Um, so, you know, these guys were, you know, there was fertility rights at these monuments. I think these guys were conceived inside. There were sunspot cycles giving off problems in around 3200 BC to, to 3000 BC. That's why the Mayans started their calendar in 3113 BC due to procession of the equinox. They, they were aware of sunspot cycles and very complex. How they got to that, it's, it's a whole story in itself, uh, a show on the Mayans. But the point is, that's why they started 3113 BC, exactly when Newgrange was built major sunspot cycle, so therefore major fertility problems because of the production of melatonin, which affects fertility. Now, a lot of people don't want to address fertility, but you have, you know, the place of Newgrange and Note is riddled with fertility. It's a whole show in itself of the fertility. But there's so many aspects of this, Peter. But these guys were like super philosophers and super scientists. Astrology was just, and astronomy was just one part of it, Peter, as was the acoustics. And it might seem like, in retrospect, an easy thing to think about, but I was trying to differentiate the astronomy research and the acoustics research, which is why I put it in two books. I didn't want to confuse people. I wanted to address one, each one, academically and scientifically. But when you look at it in retrospect, these guys had a super philosophy. These guys are exploring the consciousness. And like I described earlier, what I like to think about is, you know, when they illuminated with the sun inside and the way I've described that visually, you know, they guys could have been burning incense or on some sort of smoke particles in the air, and you would see these acoustic standing waves as sine waves, these zigzag wavy lines in the air, in, literally inside the smoke particles, you would see a sine wave in the air. And it's, it's a no-brainer. You see this in cathedrals today when, they, when they're burning their, um, their, 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 their version of incense in the, in the cathedrals, and you see the acoustic set up. So, James, so, we're James, we're almost James, at the end of the show. I, I just want, and I just wanted to, before we finish, why, why this concentration in Ireland? Why, why was this such a critical spot in the landscape for this to happen? Do you have any idea of that? Yeah, because we're better builders over here, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only joking. No, you know, I, I just think it's a fragmented story. I think these guys had a high density of rock art there because the, all the artisans were there. You know, 
I, I, I get into a little speculation at the end of the book that these guys were refugees that they came to Ireland. We have mythological writings of the Tuatha de Danann. This basically means other race of people. That these guys, we actually have scientific research released two weeks ago and that we're now linked with the Basque people. The Irish people have genetically linked with Haplo, Haplo Group 1, which are the Basque people in Spain, uh, who are red-skinned, aquiline nose and bizarre eyes that don't even look Spanish. They look like they're dropped out of the heavens, Peter. You know, so I think we were refugees. I think we have sunken islands off the coast of Ireland that are on maps. You know, so I think this was a refugee story that these guys came to Ireland, but they, they came to France. They, when you, when you, if you came from the Western Atlantic, Peter, you would hit two natural landing bays. That's Sligo Bay and the Gulf of Moraban if you were coming from the Western Atlantic. And that's where we see the biggest concentration of megalithic monuments. Then they would have migrated around the island, Peter. And the ni- next natural inland waterway is the Boyne Valley River. So I think these guys, you know, if they were refugees, who's to say we took exactly one artisan, one engineer, one mathematician in every boat? You know, I don't think it was an orderly queue getting into, as you wouldn't be as a refugee, it would be a flea, a flea for to get on a journey and get out of there of rising sea levels, the flood, whatever that may be. But so I James, think so James, we've uh, come to the end of our time and it, there's so much more to talk about, so I'm definitely going to get you back on in the new year and we'll expand on uh, this sort of introductory class that we've had today. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure, Peter. Thank you so much. So we're out of time. I hope you have a great week. My guest next week is Bob Whitehouse, and Bob is going to be talking about the toroid and all the different aspects of the torus uh, that are really, really important in terms of our uh, atomic structure, our galactic structure, and where we actually are in the torus today in our development, in our awakening consciousness. It will be another great show. I hope you'll join me then. It's Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. We hope that you found this week's show to be enlightening and inspiring. Please join host Peter Tong for another edition of Awakening to Conscious Creation next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network.